Yet is both simple and complex. You can usually get through your workday by memorizing a few commands, but under the hood, there's so much more to it. Today, we'll dive deep into Git with a special guest, Monica Powell. Let's dive in. Welcome to the Ladybug Podcast. I'm Kelly. I'm Allie. And I'm Emma, and we're debugging the tech industry. Vonage is a cloud communications platform that allows developers to integrate voice, video, and messaging into their applications using their communication APIs. Whether you're wanting to build video calls into your app, create a Facebook bot, or build applications on top of programmable phone numbers, you'll have all the tools you need. Formerly known as Nexmo, Vonage has you covered for all API communications projects. Sign up for an account at nexmo.dev ladybug and use promo code LDBUG10 for 10 euro of free credit. Again, that's nexmo.dev ladybug and use code LDBUG10 for 10 euro of free credit. AWS Amplify is a suite of tools and services that enables developers to build full-stack serverless and cloud-based web and mobile apps using their framework or technology of choice on the front end. Using Amplify, you can quickly get up and running with things like hosting, authentication, managed GraphQL, serverless functions, APIs, machine learning, chatbots, and storage for files like images, videos, and PDFs. Amplify is built especially in a way to enable traditionally front-end developers like myself to be successful because they can use their existing skill set to build real-world full-stack apps that in the past would require deep knowledge around backend, DevOps, and scalable infrastructure. The Amplify console then allows you to use a GitHub repository to deploy a globally available CDN with CI and CD built in. You can learn more about building applications with Amplify at awsamplify.info slash ladybug. Again, that's awsamplify.info slash ladybug. So really excited today to have a special guest with us to record this Git episode. So Monica, you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Hi, everyone. I'm Monica Powell. I'm a software engineer at Newzella, and I am also very active um, online within the open source community. And I was recently selected to be a GitHub star based on my involvement um, within the community. Um, So I'm excited to be here today to talk a bit more about Git. Awesome. Thanks so much for being here. So I think we can just kind of dive right in. I think it's probably worth starting at the difference between Git and GitHub because they are not the same thing. So what is Git? Um, So Git is a a version control software. Um, So it's actually powering underlying what most people probably come to expect um, when they're interacting with a site like GitHub to um, make changes to shared code. Um, But a lot of the social aspects of using Git and GitHub are a lot of the social aspects of using Git are built because of GitHub. So GitHub is providing like this social interface um, on top of Git's um, software. So in order to be able to collaborate easily um, visually, um, a lot of that is powered by Git, whereas like the actual underlying logic of how um, different changes are resolved and such is powered by Git. I like to explain this sometimes to new developers as like, you know, on your computer, how you'll often have resume V1, V2, resume for X job, resume for Y job. Um, normally, you'd want to track those updates and have them in one place. And Git allows you to do that for your software. So you'll have multiple versions of the same um, software on different branches, and then you can have multiple developers 
collaborating to that and it's easy to track. And so if anything goes wrong, we can kind of go back in history and go back to a commit or a place that worked. And then GitHub is the social network on top of that. Um, I never considered GitHub to be a social network, but I guess it is. Yeah, it kind of is. You know, you can follow people and work together and collaborate on projects. So, yeah, that's, I think, the, how I would explain I, it. I, I like that. I like that analogy. I, um, when I was finishing up my audiobook for uh, Start Freelancing Today, my husband was the one who actually edited the file and he uploads the file just being audiobook V3 final underscore. It was literally the only copy of it, but, you know, might as well just go with it. <laughs> classic, classic. That's such a thing um, when you're like editing things or whatever. But Git takes care of that process for us with code. So you don't need to have a file named final or multiple fi- files at all. You can just have different branches. It's pretty amazing. So, and then with GitHub, that's a remote. So it's like where the code is hosted and you can collaborate with other developers on there. But there are also other remotes as well, like GitLab and Bitbucket. Does Bitbucket still exist? I it think. does still exist. It does still exist. Unfortunately. Okay. <laughs> okay. No, like no hate against Bit, uh, Bitbucket. I used it when GitHub did not have the free availability for private repos. But I still have some clients who use Bitbucket and they keep on wanting me to push all of my all of our code over to uh, over to Bitbucket, and I really don't appreciate it. I can't exist in two spaces at the same time. It just does not work here. I think I have one maybe with code on it from when I was a baby dev, and different tutorials would have like push to Bitbucket instead of push to GitHub, and I didn't realize that I could just push it to GitHub instead. So I was like, okay, I guess this code just goes on Bitbucket <laughs> instead of GitHub. But I think that's my only um, Bitbucket experience. So like, how does GitLab vary? Like I've never used GitLab before. Have either of you used it? So I've only used GitHub um, for, uh, I guess, my Git version control on a remote uh, place. Uh, so I'm not super sure, like, what the differences are between. My understanding is GitHub is by far, like, the most mature and, like, ob- the most adopted of the platforms. Um, so I've just stuck with that. I have a couple of friends who have worked for GitLab. I know they're deep in the Vue community. I think they're probably built on Vue, oh. my guess. Like, GitHub's built on Rails. But I think they also had some differences with the private repositories back in the day, which was a big selling point. But now GitHub has those as well. So I'm not really sure if there are too many different features at this point, but just different alternatives. Well, one cool thing about um, GitLab is that it's open source. Um, so you can actually like see how the website works end to end. Uh, whereas like everything on GitHub or a lot of the infrastructure on GitHub is is private. There are certain parts of the infrastructure that are exposed. Um, for example, if you want to know like how GitHub uh, analyzes the languages of a repository, there's a repository um, for you to go into that. I believe it's called Linguist. Um, but I, I know some people prefer GitLab because of their commitment to actually being completely open source. Um, so that may be like a differentiator for some people, depending on where they're coming from. Okay. Hmm. Oh, that's that's a big one. That's really interesting. So what do you say we start digging into some of the concepts around Git? Because I know when I first started learning how to do anything with version control, Git was super overwhelming because I'm like, what are all these commands and how am I going to remember all of these? So let's, I feel let's start at the very like 
basics. Cool. Should we talk about ad first? Because I feel like that's the one that, well, get a knit is the first one. Mm-hmm. So maybe we should talk about get a knit first. So what does get a knit do? Um, so if you have a directory on your or a folder on your local computer, um, if you want to actually start tracking the versions of changes, um, you need to run git init, which will create an empty uh, repository. Um, and you may not actually notice any differences visually. Um, I know for like Mac computers, you have to go and look into the hidden hidden. Um, like dot files in order to see like what was created by the get init. And then you'll start seeing there's like this uh, get folder and it has uh, a bunch of stuff in it that is, is necessary for you to track the changes. Um, so that's definitely a good place uh, to start if you're not like using a, a pre-existing repository and you're starting from scratch on your computer. I've never actually looked under the hood of what's in that dot get folder. Now that I'm thinking about it. This is a really deep concept. So there's this blog post series that I love that's understanding Git for real by exploring the .git directory. Mm -hmm. So we can actually link that in the show notes because I think it's probably (laughs) a lot to try to explain on air because it's like a directive graph uh, data structure and all these like really complex things. So it might be better just to link that blog post, but it is really cool. There's so many different files that are generated and then it just tracks the diffs between the different there's files. so many there's so much in here i'm just like scrolling through this blog post and just okay well i guess i know what i'm going to be doing re- doing today <laughs> <laughs> okay so now we've established in it let's go to uh add because this is another command that we use a lot so what does the add command do? Um, so the add command will actually make it so that git is tracking specific files um so when you or when you first like initialize the repo, um, or yeah, the get a repo, Git isn't gonna like automatically add every single file into like the version control history. Um, you have to explicitly like opt in that you want it to track changes um, for certain files. Um, so if you do get add, um, you can do like a dot, which would add every single file within the within the current directory, which I don't recommend. I did it a lot when I was first using learning to use Git, um, but you can then like accidentally add um, files that you don't mean to commit, meaning like large generated files, or if you have um, secret files, like secret um, meaning containing like API keys or sensitive data. Um, so I would recommend actually like rec- um, adding using git add to add like specific files or specific folders. Um, and you also, it kind of goes along with having a um, dot git ignore. So that way, uh, if you do do git add, um, anything that's within um, the, the git ignore um, file will not be added um, to the version control history, which is important, um, I think, just to make, to make everyone's life easier. Um, yeah. I think that get ignore file is actually something that's really worth touching on in more detail, like what exactly it does. Because as you said, you don't want to be tracking literally everything in that directory. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're going to be exposing potential API keys and environmental variables and, and all those fun things that the world should not be seeing. So setting up that get ignore file is really key to me. It's one of the first things that I do. And thankfully, uh, GitHub helps with templating it for you to, you know, not track node modules, for example, because nobody wants to (laughs) track their node modules folder. I love that. Um, 
I've had students in the past, they're like, oh, get pushed. It's taking like 15 <laughs> minutes to run. Like, oh, what no. is going on? I don't understand. It's like, oh, your node modules. There's like thousands and thousands of files and they're <laughs> already on GitHub. We don't need to repush those on there. That's why it's taking like 15 minutes for <laughs> get pushed to run. Um, but also API keys, you don't want to rack up a bunch of charges because somebody stole your API key. Super important. Definitely. There's some. This might be a bit of a, a tangent of sorts, but let's say you forgot to include something on that gitignore file and it includes, let's say, an API key. You can remove something from the remote, you know, wherever it is, but it still in some sense exists on there, doesn't it? Like the, there's a history of it? Yes. Yeah, so if you just, depending on how you um, like update uh, your your files in, in um, Git, and once it's pushed to um, the remote repository, that's kind of like in, in the public or maybe not the public, but like other people who have access to that um, repository can view it. Um, and you really have to rewrite the history of Git a certain way in order to offset obfuscate um, keys um, when you are trying to remove them from the history, I would recommend probably just invalidating the key versus like messing around with, with Git too much in order to try to um, conceal something that was accidentally committed. I would be the one who just re- like removes everything and just starts fresh. <laughs> <laughs> just just take the, the, the RMR. option. Yes, RMR off. Just like delete everything. Let's start over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, rmrf.git. Um, that's, that's funny. Okay, cool. So commit, I believe is the next one that we need to talk about. So what does commit do? Um, so get commit is, um, associating like certain, like if you make changes to multiple files or just make changes to one file, um, and then you, uh, you add the, um, diffed version of that file to get um, and then when you actually commit it, it's like you're you're creating some type of description of what those changes were. Um, and so later you can look based off of like if you're looking at the description or each um, commit will have like a unique hash. You can look up by the hash um, and, um, and go directly back to those changes. So it's helpful um, for you to actually track kind of like in human readable language what changes were made um, together and, and what, what was happening. So let's talk about that a little bit more as far as the messages go, the descriptions. There's such thing as a good commit message and there's such thing as a not so good commit message. As you know, um, please work is probably not going to be very helpful, um, <laughs> but mashing the keyboard is probably also not going to be helpful. <laughs> let's be real though. We have all been there. We've always all had the like, please work or <laughs> test again or please work this time. We've all had that commit message. My best-selling product on my store is the Git log that says me saying, please work 14 times. So yeah, <laughs> we've all been there. Okay, so now let's move to the next stage. So we've added some files. We're committing those changes with the message. So now we need to actually push that up to remote. So what is Git push? So when you do Git push, that's actually pushing those changes up to some remote URL. So when you do the, um, well, I guess when you do get init, you don't usually have a remote URL set. Um, so you would have to like before, when you actually push, I guess, make sure that you have a remote URL set so that 
um, get knows where those changes should be um, pushed up to. Um, and you can always like change that URL um, later if you need to. And like if you fork something from GitHub or clone something from GitHub, um, or it will usually already have it will already have those remote URLs set, and then you can potentially change them depending on um, your purposes. Um, but uh, back to which, uh, I guess your original question, Git push is making it so that those changes on your local um, file system in Git are actually being reflected in some other place um, based off of the URL that you set. I have a weird question, and I don't know if either of you know the answer to this, but what is the origin of origin? Like, why? where did that come from as being like the default that we use, like Git push origin main, for example? No idea. No idea. I just type well, it. I, yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's these things that we just kind of learn to use over time. I'm like, I don't know why I'm using this, but I'm using it anyway. I mean, yeah, I'm not sure if it's like the remote. It's supposed to be like the central place. But yeah, I'm not sure where the naming convention <laughs> came from. Uh, one other quick tangent before we move on. There's a really funny Twitter account that pulls whenever you have a swear word in your commit message, it like tweets it out. <laughs> and so it's called developer swearing. It's pretty, pretty funny. It'll be things like, <laughs> some of these are really bad, but <laughs> these are really great. I'm trying to, I'm <laughs> trying shit again, or I fucked it up, <laughs> removed shit. It's just super funny because they're not good commit messages, but we've all been there, been frustrated at our code. <laughs> I mean, this is so relatable. So relatable. <laughs> okay. I'm going to be scrolling through that all day. I should probably go back to this. Okay. <laughs> no, you're good. It's like real too. It's not just that the Twitter account making these up. It's like pulled from the GitHub API. <laughs> okay, cool. So we've talked about commit push. So these are the ones that I would say you'll probably use like all day, every day, the add commit push trio. Mm -hmm. Whenever you want your code to be backed up to a remote like GitHub or something along those lines, you'll need to run those three commands to get your code up there. So I would say those are like the fundamental three commands. I think another one that's used that. a lot is git pull. You know, we've been talking about AWS Amplify and how it's a really fast and easy way to develop mobile and web apps on AWS. Are you interested in finding out more? Well, if you are, we have good news. AWS just announced open registration for their annual big event. It's called reInvent. No surprise that it's a virtual event this time, but the new news is they've made it a free event this year. There are plenty of Amplify sessions from general intro sessions to deeper dives. You should check them out. Use this URL to find out more about the sessions and register. www.awsamplify.info slash ladybug2. Again, that's www.awsamplify.info slash ladybug2. Keep track of code changes in real time with Datadog. Create customizable dashboards for Git and 400 plus other technologies in minutes using a simple drag and drop interface. Easily analyze your Git commits alongside your other applications, metrics, and events so you can track the performance impact of your code changes. Try Datadog today with a free trial at datadog.com ladybug. If you install the agent, Datadog will send you a free t-shirt. Again, that's datadog.com ladybug. So we should also talk about pull or rebase. I can't, honestly, like rebase is not something that I use regularly. So it is not something that I can really speak 
uh, with any sense or any any knowledge of. I would just be making some things up. But get poll is something that I use a lot, which is polling from the remote down locally. So you're, you can pull like a specific branch or you can, you know, wherever you are. So you can pull what's what's most recently updated on the GitHub repo down to your local environment, which is really useful, especially if you're collaborating with multiple developers. Yeah, I would also say like I use pull a lot more than I use um, rebase. Um, I know for rebase, you're actually like rewriting the Git history. Um, so that might be helpful in the case of like if you if you leak your API keys or if you want to clean up changes that you made, like if you had like 10, like, does this work commit um, commits, then you might want to squash those or rebase those into something that is more meaningful. Uh, but um, I know that if you if you're if you're pushing to a shared ba- branch, you do want to be careful about rebasing um, because it does affect other people's workflows in a different way than like most pushes to um, shared GitHub branches um, since it is actually rewriting the history and changing some of uh, changing the hashes for some of the commits. Um, so people may like lose their, their work or run into more merge conflicts. Like it can all be resolved, but it, it can cause like unnecessary problems if you're rebasing a branch that you've pushed to remote and other people are also using that same branch. Yeah, I've actually worked on teams that use like a push-pull workflow and teams that work on a rebase workflow. Mm. So instead of running like a push for your final commit or whatever you would do, a rebase. And so I think they're just two different workflows and depends on whatever team that you're working on, like what they end up using. Yeah, I definitely think just making sure everyone's like on the same page uh, in terms of the workflow will go the wrong way. But if people are doing different things, there could be um, conflict. For sure. Yeah, uh, this is this is where documentation about your build process is very useful. Yeah, or a commit, or a, what's it called? A contributor document, which has your rules for how people um, commit to your repo. <laughs> how they contribute. <laughs> how, yeah, it's how you can be a good member of the um, community. And I think we'll talk about that a little bit too later on is how to actually contribute to open source and the best practices for that. So let's talk about branches because when you create a GitHub repo, there is a default main branch there. But theoretically, you should not be doing all of your work on that one main branch. You should be creating multiple branches. So let's talk about the concept of a branch first. Like what exactly does it mean to create a branch? Um, I'm trying to think of a good like, I guess the best visual is kind of like a, a tree trunk, <laughs> um, <laughs> since that's like adding the Git lingo. But um, so like your main branch, your your like, I guess yeah, the main thing is still a branch. Um, so you can kind of think of like the main branch as like the tree trunk. Um, and then if you want to make changes that are based off of the like, the main branch and it will eventually go back into the main branch. You would want to like branch off into it and create your own separate branch, um, and then like as you make changes, they're isolated um, to that branch. And then uh, like on GitHub, if you open a pull request, then you can compare like all of the changes that you made that were isolated to your branch um, to the main branch. Um, and depending on what changes have happened since you made changes, you might have to like update to pull in the latest changes um, from the main branch. Um, 
but it's kind of like just setting it up so that you can isolate what the changes are that you're making so that you're not like um, polluting the main branch. And you also clearly know like what changes are being introduced before they're actually introduced into the, the main branch. Definitely. I almost think you could think of it as almost a subway map or something mm-hmm. along those lines, whatever it's called in your city, New York subway, DC Marta. Metro, anything along the Marta. In, I have no idea about Atlanta. <laughs> <laughs> Um, actually, I got my social media like flashbacks, and I was actually in Atlanta a year Aww. ago as of this recording. And no. I wasn't I know. in town. The world was so different. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so sad. The world was a different place. Um, but you could think of it almost as a subway map where maybe multiple lines start out of the same station. So they start in the same place, and then um, they branch out so that they can go to different locations. And along the ways, they have different stations, which would be our commits. They're like little stops along the ways. But then maybe those divergent lines come back together at certain points. Um, and different things that you might have different branches for would be for a feature that you're working on. So if you're working on a new user interface component or something along those lines, or a brand new addition to your application, you would probably do that on a branch. Um, you would probably have a branch for different bug fixes. What else would you have different branches for? So we do, if we're doing, let's say we're redesigning an entire product display page for a client, for a merchant, um, we'll have one primary feature branch that's going to consist of all the changes once we're ready to uh, push the page live. And then each developer, as they're working on different features from, they, they branch off of that primary branch. So they merge into the new feature branch before we merge that into the main. So kind of creating, like, as you said, like working our way out. So again, you can track who's working on what over this whole large feature. Yeah, and different teams will have different conventions for that as well. There are different Git workflows that you may have to follow. And the ones that we've been kind of talking about normally fit under the name like Git Flow. That's the strategy we've kind of been talking about, but I know there are different Git strategies as well. I've done like some trunk-based development where you are actually pushing changes directly to the main branch. Um, So that's working in kind of this like extreme programming environment doing a lot of pairing or um, there's also um, mobbing where you're working with at least two other engineers, um, making sure that like other people are getting their eyes on code before it goes into the main branch, um, but really relying a lot on automation in terms of detecting regressions and things like that and knowing that you can quickly revert, um, which is a very different workflow uh, than uh, working primarily on, on branches and opening pull requests. Um, so I have had experience like with both, um, workflows. I want to unpack some of the, some of what you just said there, just for some definitions. So let's start with extreme programming. What is that? So I'm not sure of like the textbook definition of extreme programming, but in terms of, uh, from my understanding, it's focusing on emphasizing a lot of like communication and, and close collaboration, um, in order to reduce the feedback cycles when you're developing. Um, so if you are doing some, or if you're mainly like working by yourself and then pushing up a pull request to, to GitHub, um, then there's probably going to be a lapse before another engineer is able to actually review the changes that you made. Um, so uh, when you're doing extreme programming, that those like feedback cycles are a lot 
tighter because you can just like in real time talk through like different approaches and and changes that you want to make. Um, so that's how I like came to understood extreme programming, like looking for ways um, to to optimize like feedback cycles. There's also um, a, a large emphasis on test driven development um, within um, within uh, extreme programming and, and really like building out a, a robust like test infrastructure, which is important if you are going to be like pushing directly to to the main branch and then that's going to go out into um, production or some other deployment pipeline. Um, so that's kind of how I um, have I've come to understand understand it. Um, but there's like books that are written about extreme programming and, and blog posts if people are interested in really like diving more into um, the, the specific definitions and practices that are um, within that philosophy. It sounds so intense, like just by the name of it, like like I'm just like extreme programming just like slamming on the keyboard, typing really quickly kind of thing. So that's clearly not what it is. <laughs> I mean, I think it can sometimes feel intense just in terms of like, um, it, it's very different. I think mentally, like just like coding alone versus like coding with someone else and like having to go through like back and forth through that whole process with somebody else. I think it kind of does push you um, a little bit differently than, than working alone does. Um, I've also done like some mob programming for um, one of my old teams. We wanted to refactor a lot of our code, but we wanted to make sure that everyone was on the same page about like what the conventions were that we were using moving forward. Um, and so we got, we were able to accomplish a lot. Like I, one single person wouldn't have been able to like make the decisions of what conventions we want. Um, and there would have been like, it would have taken a lot longer if if we did it like asynchronously. Um, so I would say there are like some like intense or extreme aspects um, to to doing extreme programming for sure. Mob programming sounds kind of fun, like also frustrating, but also kind of fun. I've never like I've always worked kind of in a very solo environment, maybe pairing with like mm -hmm. one other person, but having multiple people work on the same problem at the same time on the same machine just seems like it'd be a cool experience. Yeah, it can be cool. So. <laughs> <laughs> One other thing that you mentioned are regressions. So what what yeah. are regressions? Um, so regressions are when uh, you have something uh, like in production, everything works fine. Um, so say you have an e-commerce site, users can check out, everything's good. Um, and then you push some changes. Maybe they were on the shopping cart page. Maybe they weren't. And then you realize like, oh, wait, people can't add items to their cart anymore. I've never done um, that so before. At, <laughs> <laughs> um, so at some point, there was some type of change that was introduced into the code base that caused that like vital user flow to, to break. Um, so you can have different types of regressions. So you can have visual regressions where maybe visually the, the website no longer looks how it should, but at one point it did. Or you could have... Uh, like I would say more extreme regressions where like there's some type of change that was introduced that prevents like um, like critical user behavior. Um, and I would say that's different than like if you launch a new feature and there's already like there's some defect like from the beginning. But I would say regression is specifically like when um, code that was once functioning properly no longer is like functioning as expected. Cool. While we're talking about things potentially going wrong... There are two topics that I want to talk a little bit about. First is debugging with Git. This is something that I actually don't know a ton about, but I have seen a lot of conference talks about it, and that's using Git 
bisect to debug. Have either of you ever done this? So I haven't used get bisect. I was actually like looking it up before before this conversation, and I thought it was cool um, that it is a like built-in Git um, command that can help you like actually identify like specific commits that the specific commit that introduced a regression. Um, so my understanding and like based off of like some fiddling around um, is you would like type the the um, get bisect command commands and you would put um the current the current commit or the latest commit would be like a labeled as a bad commit um and then you would like go to the git log find some commit way back when that actually is working as expected um and then uh get uh bisects will then like pull it will like smartly pull like another commit for you to check to see like oh is this commit good good or bad um, so you would have to actually like compile your code, see if it works as expected. Um, and then you would say like, this is good or this is bad. And then like keep doing that until um, Bisect helps you identify uh, the where the regression was introduced. Um, there's also like some like scripting and automation that can be done to actually like do this a lot faster than someone manually doing it. Um, but it does use like some uh, more like efficient algorithms than like if a person was manually trying to like go back and, and find it um, with like a naive approach. Which is what I do. Yeah, it seems like, <laughs> oh, for sure. It seems like such a cool tool. I've never used it personally, but I think it's a really common like conference talk topic because I keep seeing conference docs on it. So we can link some of those in the show notes if people are interested in diving a little deeper because the people who use it seem to really love it and enjoy it. So might be something worth looking into, especially if you're looking for some new fun trick to level up your Git workflow. I think that's why I love Git so much is that I use it every single day and there are still these commands. I have zero idea how they work and they could so like they can improve my workflow so much mm-hmm. if I just take some time to learn them. I love that. Definitely. So another thing for debugging within Git is Git blame. Anybody want to talk about that one? <laughs> and it sounds kind of rude, like blame, but people have talked on Twitter about renaming it to something like that, like something um, a little bit more positive. Git-friendly feedback. Yeah. So get blame. Um, it will show you like for every single like line or change within a file. So you look at like the current file, um, and you can see like when was this like constant introduced, or maybe when was this constant like renamed. And it will show you who made that commit, and it'll show you when they made that commit. So you can see like was this a change that was introduced yesterday? Was this a change that was introduced three years ago? Um, so I find it helpful to just like get more context as to, um, whether something was a recent decision or, or, a, a more like legacy decision. Uh, maybe there's, I can like figure out who introduced a certain change and, and have a conversation with them to get more context. Um, I've also found it helpful for, um, like I use VS code for a lot of my development. Um, so they have a extension called, um, Git lens, and it'll actually show you like within the VS Code editor, the Git blame if you like hover over a line. Um, so sometimes when I'm like making changes, if I don't remember, like, did I make this change? Like, then I can see like, okay, I made this change three minutes ago. Um, 
And I think it's just a little bit more orienting than me having to like go check the entire diff to see what changes I made. I'm just being able to see quickly like, okay, this is something that I renamed or moved um, while I was making this, this, these um, changes. Um, So I found it helpful just to kind of help orient me um, into what I'm doing. So agree. The Git Lens VS Code extension is a must-have, in my opinion. It'll really, really help make your Git workflow even easier and built into your text editor if you use VS Code. And I'm sure that there are similar ones for other text editors as well, but I think VS Code has a really big market share yeah. as it is right now. So don't even have to That's worry about that. That's one of the first that. extensions I ever installed when, I, when I'm setting up like a new workspace for, for VS Code. It is an absolute must for me. Definitely. Okay, so similar to what we've been talking about with Git Blame, well, I guess it's along a similar line, is merge conflicts. So merge conflicts happen when two people work on the same piece of code, maybe on different branches or something along those lines, or in different commits, and then you try to pull a rebase, and Git tells you, oop, this other person also edited this line of code. You did as well. Whose changes should we use? It doesn't know how to automatically combine them. So these are something that you'll see a lot when you're working with more than one developer. But they look a little bit scary at first and can be a little bit difficult, especially way back in the day when before we had really amazing developer tools and it was just a bunch of like <laughs> arrows that showed up in your code with like a hash number and you had to weed through that and maybe do like command F in your project for a bunch of equal signs or something. Mm-hmm. But now VS Code has a really amazing tool that you can just be like, accept incoming changes or use current changes, which makes the process a lot easier and a lot less scary. But anybody have any other thoughts on merge conflicts and that whole situation? Yeah, I know like sometimes I'll like be like, okay, I want to get my branch into like the main branch before someone else does so that I can avoid um, potentially having to deal with merge conflicts. Um, Because sometimes you could have like a PR that you open and like if you have um, continuous integration and you can see like all your unit tests are passing, uh, then then someone makes a change to the, the main branch and now you have merge conflicts. And then you have to actually like fix those before um, before your your code is green. So I have found like sometimes it can like slow you down if you're like, okay, I'm ready to merge. And it's like, just kidding. Um, there, there's merge conflicts. Um, and then in terms of like complexity, I would say that there are different levels of um, like complexity, complex, complexity that happen when you have merge conflicts. Um, so it could be just like someone added like an extra import and now they're using it in one place and it's very clear, like, okay, I'm just going to accept all of the changes, both mine and the the ones from um, the remote. Um, but it does get more complicated um, when, like, one of the branches is doing refactoring um, to make sure that, like, you're not undoing someone's changes um, as you're, like, resolving the merge conflict. Um, so depending on, like, how involved it is, it might be helpful to, like, reach out to or pair uh, with the person who... Um, whose uh, changes are conflicting with yours. Um, if it's like a larger change where it's like pretty much like everything kind of moved around, um, I think that's just like helpful to um, reduce the chances of accidentally introducing a regression or like undoing somebody else's work. Um, and then also 
unit tests can be very helpful. Um, like when you're resolving merge conflicts, assuming both sets of changes have good unit te- unit test coverage, then like once you resolve the merge conflicts, like being able to have the confidence that like okay, all of the unit tests are still passing um, in the in this um, merge state. I would also recommend like actually like compiling the code or if you have like um, deploy previews, checking out the deploy preview just to make sure that there's nothing like weird or unexpected that happened um, uh, as you resolve the merge conflict um, if it's something that's like more involved. Awesome. There are two themes that I want to pull out of that. First is testing and we have a whole episode on testing if anybody's interested in learning more about that just because I know we keep mentioning it and so if that's a new concept to you, we will link that in the show notes. The second one, and this keeps coming up as a theme, is that Git really does allow you to work with other developers more smoothly and it is built for that. It allows you to collaborate better, not having everybody overwriting each other's code and different versions are tracked, but it's still so important to actually communicate with your coworkers and to talk to them about their code. It does not replace that. And having communication about... I'm working on this, so maybe you want to work on this other feature so we don't conflict or something along those lines. Those are still important conversations to have. I think it's definitely important to note as well, like when you run into a merge conflict, it does not mean that you're a bad developer. I think we immediately see a merge conflict and we're like, oh crap, we messed up somewhere. And it's not necessarily that. As you said, like there there could be some just very minor changes that had been made and you just need to, to you know, sync that up. So it's not a uh, a testament to your ability to code or your ability to contribute to open source projects or whatever. It's a very, to me, it's a very normal thing that you can you can run into when you're collaborating with multiple developers. Definitely. Amazing. And something you also brought up, Monica, was PRs, which are pull requests. Mm-hmm. And these are actually a GitHub-specific feature. So they're not built into Git. They're built into whatever... Um, remote or whatever mm-hmm. that you're using. So what is a pull request? Um, so a pull request is, um, so if you had like a branch that you were working on locally and you push that up to GitHub, um, if you go to the repository, you can then do um, open a pull request, which is basically creating like a visual diff between um, your branch and you can do it against any other branch. Usually people do it off of um, the main branch. Um, but if you're maybe working off of like Another branch, you might like want to merge it directly into that branch. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so you have this visual diff of, of your changes and whatever branch you're trying to compare it to. And then um, another developer can um, leave com or whoever who has GitHub access can leave comments um, on the, the pull request, um, like on specific lines that change and ask questions. Um, so they um, they could potentially ask like, oh, is there a reason this has to be rewritten? Or um, if you're using something like TypeScript, they may have feedback on like, are you um, writing, are, are you writing, pro- typing um, your code properly? Um, or maybe there's a different way that you could type it. Um, it's really to have like a conversation. Um, and then if you, uh, they someone can also leave just like high level comments overall that aren't specific to a line of code. Um, so they could just um, maybe summar- summarize their feedback. Um, and then uh, when you are actually reviewing the code, you can either uh, approve the code. So you're explicitly saying, like, I think this is ready to be merged into the branch um, that it's being compared to. 
Um, you could just leave a comment, which is neutral. It's like you don't approve it, but you're not also you're also not saying like there's something that needs to change. Um, and then the other status is you're requesting changes, um, meaning that there is some feedback that you'd like to be addressed before the changes are, are merged into the main branch. Um, and on GitHub, uh, you can set up different rules uh, for branches. So you could say like, if someone's going to merge into the main branch, then it requires at least two approvals. Um, so that way, um, changes aren't introduced uh, without at least two people um, actually giving them the green light. Um, if you're merging into a branch that isn't the main branch, usually the, the protections are um, more flexible. So you maybe don't even need anyone to approve it. But then like once that other branch is merged, then you would actually, you would need to um, satisfy whatever the minimum uh, review requirements are. Um, and then also another, I, I think, cool thing about um, GitHub pull requests is now um, there's integrations, uh, I know, with like Vercel and Netlify, where if you're deploying to those um, uh, hosting companies, you can actually see a deploy preview um, very easily of uh, the changes that you made specifically in that branch, um, like live. So it's like a cool way to get a nice like staging site up and have it in the context of um, the, the branch. And you can also have... Um, different like CI things that are running when you open a um, specific pull request. So you can have like all of your unit tests run, um, linting. Um, I recently uh, set up a GitHub action uh, that makes sure that whenever I make changes that all of my images are optimized. Um, so it will actually make like go manual or I guess not manually, but it will automatically go through all of the image files and then compress the ones that need to be compressed and then push those changes to my branch. So I don't have to worry about um, manually um, optimizing the images because I have a process that is automatically running when op whenever I open a new um, pull request that triggers it to run. We have a GitHub action set up for the tap room that it blo it automatically blocks you from merging a pull request until somebody's reviewed your code, just to make sure we're following best practices, especially for Shopify development. But we have a GitHub action that sends a Slack message to our pull request channel saying that so-and-so just opened a pull request. Here's a link to it. Here's some information about it. And it also will ping when somebody's approved it or somebody has requested changes. And I recently requested changes on, on one of the... Uh, one of the pull requests that one of my new devs had pulled out and it just sends this message saying like, Kelly rejected your pull request, sad face. And I'm like, a little brutal. Oh no. <laughs> so one other quick feature that I want to mention on GitHub but not dive too deep on is forks. And forks allow you to essentially copy a repository to your own profile. So if you wanted to create your own version of Dev2 or something along those lines, you could create a fork of it. And then you could add your code to that fork, and then you can make a pull request back to the main repo as well. So that's another feature that is GitHub specific that you might see as well, especially if you're working on open source. And that's another thing that I want to briefly discuss as well as contributing to open source. And Monica, I think you have a lot of experience there. Um, yeah. So I would say in terms of contributing to open source, uh, I think this is going to air after Hacktober, Hacktoberfest. Um, but there's like this huge event in, every year in October um, that encourages 
new contributors or, or people who haven't contributed as much to open source to, to really contribute. Um, so a lot of maintainers of open source projects, they put energy into um, creating issues that are uh, very like detailed and descriptive and uh, approachable for newer contributors. Um, but throughout the year, you can usually find um, potential issues to work on by searching GitHub for things like good first issue, um, so that usually means that you don't have to have a lot of context that's specific to that project in order to make that contribution. Um, and I would say like another way that you can uh, potentially like find things to work on uh, within open within the open source um, ecosystem is if you are uh, using open source software, um, like for example, if you're using Vue and you notice something strange that is behaving unexpectedly, um, you could open an issue or search their issues to see if this is something that is um, currently being discussed um, and potentially actually like implement the changes um, depending on what is um, required. Um, and I would say in terms of um, what I look for when I'm looking to contribute to a project is making sure that they have like good documentation and it's clear um, how I can get like up and running quickly, what the expectations are for contributors. Um, so there are um, different files. I know that um, like on GitHub, community health files is, is what they call them. So you'll usually have like um, like a contributor's MD file or um, especially like a code of conduct uh, file, things of that nature um, to make it clear uh, like what types of behavior um, are, are not acceptable and what types of contributions um, are, are welcome or, or not. Um, so I would definitely try to like look through some of the doc the meta documentation about contributing to a project before um, diving in uh, to potentially help you like avoid wasting time um, contributing to a project if they're if they're um, not maybe like looking for contributions in that area um, so that is something to to be mindful of that's huge and I feel like I still get intimidated by contributing to open source even though I'm so many years into this I made a PR on a Gridsum's documentation recently, and it's just a documentation pull request. So it's not an end of the world by any means, but I was like having multiple people that I know look at it before I submitted mm -hmm. it. I was like, please make sure that this is okay. Um, so I will say that, if, especially if you're new to this, it is kind of a tricky process. Uh, I also want to shout out that we do have two episodes on Hacktoberfest from last year. So if that's something that you're interested in or want to learn even more about contributing to open source, we have a couple episodes on that as well. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Monica. We're going to do a quick round of shout outs. So do you want to go ahead and do yours first? Um, so I recently read this book, Working in Public by um, Nadia Ekbal, and it is a research book about like Git and GitHub and how does open source um, work. Um, so I found that like super helpful to kind of get a better like overview of how GitHub works outside of the communities that I'm involved in. Um, it, so she covers a lot of like interesting history about um, open source um, as well as like what are like some different ways that um, people are, are monetizing open source um, and really getting a better glimpse of like a lot of the different opinions that are within the community. Um, a lot of the book does focus on GitHub since that is um, the largest place uh, for like open source um, contributions. But um, there is like some stuff that is touches on other platforms um, as well as uh, open source 
platform agnostically. So I would definitely recommend checking that out. Awesome. Kelly, how about you? So I'm going a little self-promotion this week. I finally released the audiobook version of my book, Start Freelancing Today. I spent three or four weekends sitting in my closet recording it. And my husband very kindly stopped and started me and told me when I was not saying the right words or that I sounded funny or I mispronounced something. And it was a lot of work and then he edited it. So I'm really excited for for it to be out out in the open now. That's awesome. Allie, what's yours? Mine? Okay, so as of recording this last week, I did my first ever Twitch stream. And it was something I was so nervous about. And I have no idea still what I'm doing. It's just a totally different world to me. But I had a lot of fun doing it. And people were really nice in the chat and built up a kind of cute community. So I'm having fun doing it. And I'm going to keep doing Twitch. It's very much out of my comfort zone, but I'm having fun with it. So that's my shout out. Uh, Monica, before we leave, where is the best place for our audience to find you on the internet or a couple places? Yes. So um, you can go to my website, which is aboutmonica.com or I do have monica.dev. It'll just redirect there. And uh, I'm also active on Twitter at waterproofheart. Um, and, uh, as well as if you look on Edhead, you can find, uh, some of my lessons. So that those are the best places to find me on the web. Amazing. We will link all of those in the show notes and clutch move on getting Monica.dev, by the way. Did you get that day one? Yes. Um, so I went with a registrar that will actually, you like pay them, I think in advance, and then they would like automatically place the order for you as soon as it opened. Um, so yeah, I was able to get it automated or else I don't think I would have been fast enough. So I love that. That's amazing. Awesome. So if you like this episode, tweet about it. We love to read your feedback. This week, we're giving away a license to Egghead so you can watch all of Monica's lessons. So if you would like to be entered to win that, go ahead and tweet about our episode. Uh, We post new podcasts every Monday, so make sure to subscribe to be notified and leave us a review. Talk to you next Monday.